0: Do Arsenal need a new striker? The rest of the big stories from the Premier League weekend discussed. Girona's fairy tale season continues, Bayern thrashed, and a full scale ban on Greek sports fans. All discussed on this week's episode of The Debrief. Hey everybody, how's it going? Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Welcome back to the Debrief here on the Chronicles of a Guna podcast with me, Harry Simeou. And on this episode, we've got a load to get into. We're going to be discussing whether or not Arsenal need a new striker. Gabriel Jesus' performance and Arsenal's performance in general, I think, at the weekend has sparked that discussion again. Into life, we'll talk about that. We'll also wrap up the big stories from another brilliant weekend of Premier League action, certainly in terms of entertainment. We'll discuss a fairy tale story in Spain that doesn't seem to be going anywhere Girona, top La Liga. Uh, we'll be talking about Bayern's thrashing at the hands of Eintracht Frankfurt, and uh, we'll be discussing a story very close to my heart a story about the ban, the blanket ban of Greek sports fans that has been imposed today. Um, Lots and lots to get into then as usual. Big hello to everybody joining us in the live chat. hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Thank you so, so much uh, for being with me uh, this afternoon, late afternoon, I guess. Um, If you are watching this back or listening to it back, please like, review, all the rest of it. You know the drill. By now, you know what you need to do so uh, i shouldn't have to say it anymore just do it uh, anyway okay we're going to start with the arsenal chat and um straight away you know just from from my intro i can tell that this is something that will that will cause debate and that will spark debate and that will drive conversation and the reason i picked this as a talking point today is because when i went through the comment section following yesterday's show that seemed to be quite a common response this idea that Arsenal need a new striker. And unless they get a new striker, they're not going to achieve anything that they're hoping to achieve this season. They're not going to win the Premier League, for example. They're not going to go to the very latter stages of the Champions League. So there's a lot of you out there with a genuine concern about our striking options at the moment. And we talked about this maybe a few weeks ago now, where the subject came up. And, and I said that to me, you know, you're almost disrespecting if you're coming at it from that angle if you're one of those people that says our strike options are just not good enough I think you're kind of disrespecting what Gabriel Jesus brings to the side and I think a lot of the time this season when we've been talking about you know maybe Arsenal not clicking in attack not being at their best in attack that's generally been I would say when he's not been available so yeah um my opinion generally on Gabriel Jesus hasn't really changed. But did the weekend prompt me into changing my mind on maybe the way that we set up or the need for an alternative option? Have I always been totally convinced by Eddie and Nketiah? The answer is no. I think he's a good striker. But I think the drop off between Jesus and him in terms of their overall game is quite significant. And that can be and might be a problem later down the line so we're going to get into this in a lot more detail Uh, don't worry just uh, remember leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already subscribe to the channel if you're brand new and if you're listening on audio please do leave us a review let's dive into that question then do arsenal need a new striker on the face of it on the surface of it i'd say no because I, i sit there and i try and i try and i try and i try to think of who would be an option to come in and give us more than Gabriel Jesus does currently, that is affordable, that is attainable. And when I think about that, I struggle to come up with options. I really do. Now, obviously, you know, there are players out there. There's your Victor Ossimans, there's your uh, Dusan Vlavic, people that I'm big on, that I like a lot. But are they options that Arsenal would be able to get a hold of in January? And if they're not, which they're probably not, then you should probably park this conversation and leave it for the summer because there's nothing we can really do about it now. Are there cheaper alternatives? Are there options out there that Arsenal could go and get, for example, in January that might not be world beaters, that might be sort of stopgap signings, that might be players that, you know, we're going to be unsure about maybe 12, 18 months down the line, but that could make the difference in the interim. I don't really know. And I know I'm not giving you many answers here. I know it's more like, I don't know, who can it be? I'm thinking I'm struggling. And maybe that's a piece of content that we can do down the line. But at this moment in time, if you say to me, we're going to go and get a striker, there is a part of me that thinks that bringing in that type of stopgap player is not really the way Arsenal do business anymore, unless it's incredibly low risk. So you think about, for example, the signing of Jorginho. That was incredibly low risk from Arsenal's point of view. Cost them around about £10 million. The salary was manageable. And Jorginho is such an experienced player and has got such a track record and and has been in the Premier League for a long time. Everybody knew exactly what we were getting. Mikel Arteta and Edu, when that deal was sanctioned, knew exactly what and who they were bringing in. So the only way I see Arsenal going out and bringing in a striker in January is if it's that type of deal. Is there someone out there who's maybe at a crossroads in their career? Is there someone out there who's been really, really good for a number of years, but has maybe been underappreciated because he's been at a club where he hasn't been allowed to thrive? um, and, And that's down to the circumstances around him that would be chomping at the bit for a move to a side like Arsenal that would be happy actually playing second fiddle or at least content playing second fiddle to somebody like Gabriel Jesus. I don't know. And and this is where, you know, the recruitment team will obviously earn their money, uh, of course, because it'll be on them to go out and find this type of player. But I just think this whole discussion, this whole conversation is incredibly disrespectful to Gabriel Jesus in the sense of I think that he does so much for this team that just, uh, you know, I can't understand why. But it seems to go under the radar and is super underappreciated by such a large proportion of our fan base. Said it to you guys weeks ago, if we're going to bring in another striker, it needs to be with a view to improving on Eddie and Ketia, not on Gabriel Jesus. Is he a lethal goal scorer that is going to score you 20 to 30 goals every single season? No, he's not. But he's one hell of a facilitator. And the reason I wanted to kind of bring this up and discuss it is because I think another big point that people miss, aside from Jesus' work rate, aside from the fact that he is this brilliant facilitator who had it not been for him, you know, you certainly wouldn't have been getting the outputs that we were getting from Saka, Odegaard and Martinelli last season, is that, to me, the striker role has evolved, it's developed, it's changed, and I think if you look across some of the biggest sides in world football and the way that their strikers' centre-forwards operate, you'll find, actually, that it's not too dissimilar to what Gabriel Jesus does, and therefore, if some of the best coaches in the world are looking for those specific qualities, is Mikel Arteta wrong to, to also prioritise a striker who brings those specific qualities to the table? Let me explain a little bit more about what I mean. So I talk about the facilitation of players around you. Now, this ties into the fact that I think wingers have evolved, that I think there's been an evolution in what the role of a winger is. Nowadays, we call them wingers, but more often they're not, they're wide forwards. You look at Gabriel Martinelli, you certainly wouldn't categorise him as a left midfielder. You know, you'd say that, yeah, he's a left winger on paper. But when you look at the way that he likes to come inside, the way that he likes to get close to the centre-forward, he's a left forward. You look at Bukayo Saka and you could probably say the same. You look at players across the division like Hume Min Son, he's a left forward. He's not a winger. You look at Mohamed Salah at Liverpool, a right-sided forward. This is the way that the game is going. There's been an evolution in those two positions, and they now look very different to the way that they looked in the past. Wingers are getting more goals. Wingers are getting more involved in central attacking build-up play. And as a result of that, centre-forwards have had to change their game and adapt their game. More often than not, we see the top, top centre-forwards nowadays dropping into slightly deeper positions, getting onto the ball in different areas. Pulling left, pulling right in a bid to drag defenders out of position and facilitate and create spaces for the players coming in from those wide forward positions. Harry Kane is a great example of this. He's a great example of a forward who, you know, was at the beginning an out and out centre forward with, in truth, very little else to his game. As time's gone on, he's dropped into deeper and deeper pockets. He now gets on the ball, um, receives it with his back to goal, gets on the ball, turns and faces, plays brilliant balls, sometimes without even looking either side of him, left or right. You know, and, and he's become a facilitator. He became that hugely for Tottenham at the end of his time there. And he's gone to Bayern Munich and he does a lot of those brilliant things there, too. You look at somebody like Robert Lewandowski, great at all that stuff. Cold blooded finisher in front of goal, too, as is Harry Kane. But these forwards are elite center forwards, the very, very best in the business. Why? Because they can do both of those things. Mikel Arteta's clearly taken a decision when it comes to Gabi Jesus. He's clearly decided that actually, as important as it is to have a striker that can score me X amount of goals, in Jesus, I've got someone who is much stronger. In the facilitation aspect of the game than he is in the finishing side of the game and i've got to make a decision on what i think i need to prioritize as i said before if jesus does not play the role that jesus plays if jesus does not play the way that we want him to then then jesus does not sorry saka does not get the opportunities that he gets martinelli does not get the opportunities that he gets and neither does martin Odegaard because the amount of times that Gabriel Jesus will drag people into awkward spaces, which creates that bit of room on the edge of the box. And boom, Martin Odegaard pops up. He should have scored two goals at the weekend because of the movement of Gabriel Jesus. The chance he had in the first half was created by Gabriel Jesus going in towards the centre-halves, uh, the centre occupying them, causing them a problem. And then being able to, having dragged them towards him, having attracted them, he's been able to then lay off to Odegaard in space for him to get the shot off. That does not happen with a centre-forward whose mind is only on putting the ball in the back of the net. You look at Manchester City, they're a good example. They've got the best out-and-out striker, probably in world football at the moment, in um, Erling Haaland. But it does impact on the outputs of those around him because, yes, he's a great finisher and, and because he's such a good finisher and such a cold-blooded killer and so powerful and strong and all the rest of it, Pep Guardiola has abandoned the idea that got him to where he was in the first place, which was false nines, people that link up, rotation across the front line. But it takes a very, very special player to turn a manager away from a, a style to turn to something different, which is what Pep Guardiola's done with Erling Haaland. But they look equally good when Julian Alvarez plays there, who's a different type of player. Why? Because he strings it all together. It's not wrong. It's not right. It's just one way versus the other. For example, you know, if you were to put Erling Haaland in the Arsenal team, yeah, he'd score a shit ton of goals because he's brilliant. But there are costs to that. Okay, you are going to impact the outputs of those players around him because all the focus is on him if you lose him you're up shit street and as someone says in the chat which i think is a great point um justin no name says city destroyed their midfield city have impacted the balance of their midfield to facilitate erling Haaland. and last season they were fine with it because you know they um they had rodri available all the time pretty much and you know, Haaland was on absolute fire. This season, when Rodri's not been available, they've looked soft-centred and weak. They've allowed Gundogan to go. They've allowed, um, you know, some of the wide options that will contribute goals. the likes like to to go. Um, you know, they're asking Bernardo Silva to play in areas that I don't think he's totally 100% comfortable in, although he's a brilliant player. The point I'm trying to make here is that it's all about balance. It's all about balance. And if Jesus gets you 15 goals in all comps, over the course of the season, which he's more than capable of doing if he stays fit, then but also produces the, the the footing for Saka and for Martinelli to do the same and for Odegaard to do the same, that can at times be more effective. So I do think Arsenal could do with a different option. Yes, a bit more of a target man, someone who can play in a slightly different role and all the rest of it, right? And, and someone who can offer us a slightly different threat. But to sit there and say that, Number one, Jesus is not good enough, is damn right disrespectful. To say that he doesn't improve this team a tenfold when he's in it is disrespectful. And to suggest that the reason we didn't win the game or score a goal at Villa Park was purely because of Gabriel Jesus not being this cold-blooded killer that everybody wants him to be is also a nonsense. This guy has taken Arsenal's attack to a whole new level since he arrived at the football club. And so while I'd like to see a slightly different option come in in time, because I think Enketia, in terms of his physical profile and build is quite similar to Jesus. So maybe there could be, you know, some scope to change that up. This talk of the Brazilian not being good enough, it just really does get under my skin and I absolutely hate it. Could we do with him scoring a few more goals? Yeah, of course. Of course we could. But he's so important to the rest of the team. So important to the rest of the team. Malesi says, um, weak argument. Aren't they successful? As in Manchester City is talking about. My argument is not that Manchester City are not successful. My argument is that Pep Guardiola is a manager who always, always, always prioritised forwards that had the greater ability when it comes to link up play when it comes to, um, you know, holding the ball in areas to allow people to get close to them and around them. Of course, he's always been an elite team, so he's always had elite players. But this was a guy that was, you know, criticised at times for being so persistent with a false nine. In the end, he was happy for Sergio Aguero to go because Sergio Aguero wasn't really... okay. he had his fitness problems, but he wasn't really the type of striker that Pep wanted. Sergio Aguero, one of the best Premier League strikers we've ever seen. The point I'm trying to make here is that you've got to make a choice as a manager. If you've got a striker as good as Erling Haaland, and there aren't many out there, then yeah, you're, you're fine to funnel everything through him. You're fine to have him be a bit of a passenger and adjust your balance elsewhere in the team. Because you know when that ball drops to him in the box, he's going to make the most of it. He's going to take advantage of this situation and he's going to win you the football match. But when you don't have that level of striker, it's a perfectly reasonable argument to say that actually having someone who's half facilitator, half goal scorer is more beneficial to my team because I've got goals in other areas. I've got wingers, wide forwards that can contribute those goals. I've got midfielders in Havertz and Odegaard now who have a license to get forward and 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 that is a perfectly reasonable thing to think as a manager and to argue. And over the course of the last 18 months, since Gabriel Jesus came to Arsenal, Mikel Arteta has been proven right in this because Arsenal's attack on the whole is a lot more potent and it's been far, far improved, as has the balance of the team because we've got somebody who can help us defend from the front, which means we're under pressure less, which means we keep more clean sheets and all the rest of it. John hits the nail on the head. Jesus is an absolute baller period completely agree completely agree so I know I've gone around the houses for a little while do Arsenal need a new striker they could do with an alternative option to Gabriel Jesus but this is not a priority for me going into January I think there are a couple of positions midfield being one of them and probably one more defender uh, because of the injury issues that we've got those two things take precedent for me um over the uh, over the signing of a striker uh, of a forward, so yeah, that's my um, that's my opinion on that. Anyway, uh, let's move on. We're going to talk uh, about some of the standout Premier League results this weekend. Um, when we come back from that, uh, then we're going to do a bit of a European roundup because so there's some big stories from the continent as well. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Okay, another interesting weekend of Premier League football. Yes, it was indeed. If we go back to Saturday, Liverpool went to the top of the Premier League, coming from behind to beat Crystal Palace by two goals to one. Controversial red card in that one. I mean, I was listening to it on the radio, and from what I heard, it seemed incredibly controversial. When I watched it, was it actually that controversial? I mean, I think it's a bit harsh, but I don't think it was completely wild. Um, and Roy Hodgson obviously making his feelings known after the game. Elsewhere, Manchester United fell to a 3-0 defeat at Old Trafford at the hands of Andoni Iriola's Bournemouth. I've said this to you guys on previous episodes of the debrief, sort of going back to when we first uh, launched this uh, this sort of iteration of the show. And I said that under Andoni Iriola, Bournemouth, who I've watched three or four times live in the flesh this season, actually do play some good stuff and will come good at some point. And I think you're seeing that now. They are level on points with Chelsea in the Premier League. How about that? A week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe, everybody was relegating them. Um, Sheffield United got off to victory uh, in Chris Wilder's second game. They beat Brentford by a goal to nil. Um, Wolves drew 1-1 with Nottingham Forest. Steve Cooper not sacked yet. Still going, still holding on despite those reports that were doing the rounds going into the weekend. And of course, to round up Saturday's football, Arsenal were beaten by a goal to nil at Aston Villa. Now you can go back on the channel to the last video, the last episode of the podcast, and you can hear my thoughts and analysis on that one. But I just, before we move on from Saturday stuff, I just want to stop um, at Old Trafford for a minute and talk about the situation that Eric Ten Hag finds himself in. That is the type of result for me that on paper looks bad enough for you to lose your job. And I don't think he will, because I think that United recognize that they're in this weird period with, um, you know, some new investors coming in that will be hoping, of course, to instill people into the positions from which they can have a positive influence over the footballing structure. But my God, it looks bad. It looks really, really bad um, at the moment. Um, You know, the performance was all over the place. It could have been more than three for Bournemouth. And um, you just look at that and it was just an abject group of players that just, just clearly don't really want to play for this guy. Despite what they come out and say in the media, um, it feels like they've down tools for Eric Ten And You know, although I feel sorry for him in that sense, because I think once the players turn on you like that, it's really difficult to recover. I also think he's made a lot of mistakes on, along the way, which we've discussed previously on the debrief and over uh, on the 90 Min show as well. Um But I think that the the main thing I kind of wanted to touch on was the Bruno Fernandes stuff. Bruno Fernandes, of course, picked up a yellow card um, towards the end of the game, a second yellow card. Well, not second yellow card, a yellow card, I beg your pardon, that sees him suspended for the game against Liverpool next weekend, which has left Manchester United fans absolutely raging. I think they've become super over-reliant on Bruno. I think they've been reliant on him too much, actually, since the day he arrived at the club. He started scoring goals straight away, impacting games. And a lot of the reason he's in the team, even though sometimes in terms of balance and defensively, he doesn't really give you everything you need is because you look at United's forwards this season and they're just not firing. Rasmus Hoyland hasn't got a Premier League goal yet. He's gone well in the Champions League, to be fair to him, but he hasn't got a Premier League goal yet. Marcus Rashford has been a shadow of himself. Anthony was a little bit better at the weekend, but it's been diabolical, generally speaking, since he joined Man United. You look at Martial, they're still talking about Martial and hoping that Anthony Martial is going to come good. It's not going to happen. That much is clear. I, I think that Bruno's in the side because you know, they heavily rely on him to make stuff happen in the final third. It's the same for McTominay at the moment as well, who as a midfielder generally doesn't offer much, but as a goal scoring threat gives you something. And that's why I think that Ten Hag is now caught in this weird place of like feeling he has to pick certain players because others are not doing their jobs. He changes the team every week. He changes the style seemingly quite often because obviously he wants to imprint some kind of style, but it's just not happened. There's weeks where he goes. Screw it. I'll do it and see what happens. And then they become really defensively exposed. And there's weeks where, you know, he plays this more pragmatic style and everyone's saying that Ten Hag side is thinking out the place. He can't really win. And I just feel like it's got to a point where Eric Ten Hag probably needs to move on from Manchester United um, for the good of his own career, but also uh, for Manchester United's good as well. I mean, I'm happy for it to continue, but you get the point. Moving on to Sunday's football, uh, some really, really interesting games. Everton. Uh, beat Newcastle uh, by three goals. I beg your pardon, I'm looking at the wrong day. Everton beat Chelsea, Not not Newcastle, that was the other night. They beat them by three goals to nil. They beat Chelsea this weekend by two goals to nil. Everton doing really, really well. Um, With the exception of the United game post the points deduction, clawing a lot of that back. And they'll be confident now, I'm sure, that they'll be able to do enough to stay up. Another miserable day out for Chelsea, another miserable trip to Goodison Park. But the big story here for me is Pochettino's comments after the game. He wants them to spend more money. He thinks they need to invest in more players. If I were Todd Bowley, you know, I'd be looking at him and saying, look, I brought you in to work with this group that I... Believe is very, very talented. That you probably told me you thought was incredibly talented, in order to get the job. But well, now you got to work with them and you got to make this happen. And you know, I'm not saying that Pochettino, a bit like Ten Hag, is to blame for every problem at Chelsea Football Club right now. But I don't think he's got the best out of this group. And you know, I can accept them being a bit inconsistent because of the amount of players they brought in and all the rest of it. But for them to be, you know, level on points with Bournemouth, Brentford, and Wolves at this stage of the season, I just think it's totally unacceptable. Fulham thrashed West Ham United by five goals to nil. It came out after the game that West Ham had been hit by a sickness bug, but still a disappointing result for David Moore's side. Luton, despite leading Manchester City, ended up losing by two goals to one. Another valiant effort from Rob Edwards' side, but they just lacked the quality um, when they really, really needed it. Um, and uh, City were able to I'm not going to say cruise to because they struggled at points in that game, but they were able to just about do enough and get over the line. Tottenham 4, Newcastle United 1. It clicked for Ange. You know, they were were really good in terms of the chances they created and all the rest of it. And this time they took them and that was the difference. What I will say is I thought that there was a slightly more mature side to Tottenham on display in that um, at the start of the second half when Newcastle came out. Uh, ready to kind of try and mount some kind of fight back. I thought that Tottenham did really well to just sit off slightly deeper, um, buy their time, soak it up a little bit, and then their amazing counter-attacking threat came into play. And I thought it was just a much more rounded and balanced performance uh, from uh, from Tottenham Hotspur. So those are the big stories from the Premier League this weekend. We're going to take a short pause, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Girona, whose fairy tale over in La Liga continues. Welcome back to the debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Don't forget, if you haven't done so already, uh, please do leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel if you're new, and all the rest of it. You know what to do by now. Barcelona took on Girona in the Catalan derby and lost by four goals to two at home. Now, I know Barca aren't playing in the Camp Nou at the moment. It's not quite the same. But this was a really, really significant result for Girona, who everybody keeps waiting for to kind of fall off. And it's just not happening at the moment. They played 16 La Liga games this season. They won 13 of them. Just the one defeat so far, two draws on the board, goal difference of plus 18, which is six better than Barcelona's, level with Atletico Madrids, and only Real Madrid have a greater goal difference with plus 24. They are now two points clear at the top of the table after this one. And when I put a tweet out last night saying, wow, like the, the Girona story continues, I had a few replies of, from people saying, yeah, but they're part of the City group. So it's not really a fairy tale like it's being portrayed as one but is it really one given that they're part of a very wealthy group and all the rest of it and i get what you're saying right and and, you know I i totally take that on board but this is still an amazing story this is still a wonderful story a club that have come out of nowhere essentially and are challenging for the la liga table it's it's something worth shouting about and after i read a lot of those comments about the city group and stuff i thought Have they bought their way to this position? Have they gone nuts last summer in the window in terms of, you know, by La Liga standards and I've completely missed it? So I went and had a look at some of the signings that they made over the summer. And the biggest signing that they made was a player, a centre forward called Artem Dobvik from Dnipro in Ukraine. 7.7 million euros. That's not a big fee at all by today's standards. He has got eight goals and five assists in 15 La Liga appearances this season. So, yeah, they might be part of the City group and they might be getting a bit of a hand in terms of operations, how they do things. They might be pulling on the expertise that the City group has within its ranks. I get all of that, but still on the pitch, this has been quite the rise. This has been a a job brilliantly done. And, And even if Girona were to fall short and end up sixth come the end of the season, and get European football, that would still be an amazing achievement for that football club. So yes, it might not be the fairy tale that, you know, some portray it to be. But to me, it's still a footballing fairy tale, regardless of the helping hand they might have. Because if you look at what they've spent, if you look at the business they've done, it's not wild at all. It's not like they've gone absolutely bonkers crazy. And um, and um, uh, yeah, that's that's why. It's not like they've done what City did when they got the money. It's not like they've done what Chelsea did when they got the money and all of a sudden they were instant contenders. This is, you know, and and this is why I kind of like La Liga and Serie A and obviously I like Serie A more, but this is one of the reasons why European football still attracts me and why I feel like the the Premier League as a a, a sort of product and on the whole, put aside the bad officiating, which drives me mad, as you guys would have heard many times in recent times, There's something about these leagues that is just special because this stuff can still happen because it isn't, you know, it isn't a a level playing field. You know, Barca, Atletico and Real Madrid obviously have far bigger pockets than most of the rest of the league, but clubs can compete in these leagues with smart recruitment. Whereas in the Premier League, you pretty much know which clubs are going to be at the top table because financially they are just so, so superior. So I I love stories like this. And again, I take the point on board, they're part of the city group. They probably had a bit of a helping hand, if not directly financially, but in terms of pulling on expertise, maybe that lay within that group. This is still an amazing story. And to go and win away at Barcelona by four goals to two in a Catalan derby is pretty special. Okay, one more short pause, and then we're going to talk Eintracht Frankfurt's victory over Bayern Munich, as well as a ban for Greek sports fans across the board which was announced today. Okay, let's um, let's dive into uh, another shock result. This one came from Germany and from the Bundesliga to be specific. Eintracht Frankfurt defeated Bayern by five goals to one on Saturday. And when I saw this result, I was obviously shocked. I was taken aback by it. I thought, great, Bayern have hit crap form just before they're going to play Man United in the Champions League and i thought you know sometimes these score lines they can be a little bit misleading you know we've seen games i'd take the everton newcastle one in midweek where everton were leading by a goal to nil and then got two late goals which then made the score look massive like and and made it look like a far more comfortable victory than maybe the reality was and so when i see scores like this 5-1 i always think well was it sort of 2-1 and then bayern went in search of the equalizer and opened up a little bit which allowed Frankfurt to sort of open um, the back door, sort of late on, and and sort of essentially kill them. It, this this wasn't the case. Eintracht Frankfurt scored all five goals within the first sixty minutes of this game, so they were well and away clear um, of Bayern Munich by the latter stages. And I just think this is just a a mad result, man. Um, you know, we've seen Frankfurt compare uh, compete. I beg your pardon in Europe in recent seasons and do a pretty good job, but they're seventh in the league this year. They're not exactly pulling up any trees. And although Bayern have a game in hand, uh, they've only played 13 in the Bundesliga. Bayern Leverkusen have played 14. There is now a four-point gap between the two sides. Yet Bayern win their game in hand, it becomes one. But that adds pressure to Bayern now, doesn't it? And just could we? Could we see somebody else win the Bundesliga for the first time in what feels like an absolute age? I really, really hope so. Elsewhere, uh, all Super League games, that's across multiple sports, football, basketball, volleyball, all the rest of it, um, will now be played without fans until February. And that's off the back of some crowd trouble that happened in a volleyball game. Only Greek people, and I can say that because I'm Greek, only in Greece would we get the level of crowd trouble at a volleyball game that leads to a nationwide ban of supporters until February. There's a big problem with violence around sport. And I know that the government are doing everything they can to clamp this down to the point where they're taking really serious and severe measures like this. But the feeling in Greece from what I've been reading today is that actually this was a problem created by the Olympiakos volleyball supporters. Now, it is very different in Greece. So if you're like Olympiakos as a sports club, We'll have a football team. They've got a basketball team. They've got a volleyball team. They take all of those things really seriously. And that's the same with all the other big clubs, right? But the general consensus appears to be that it was the Olympiacos fans during that game with Panathinaikos, volleyball game that is, over the weekend, that were the instigators here. And so a lot of other fans, um, supporters of other clubs, they think that this is harsh and unfair. And they believe that the Olympiakos fans should be banned. They should be forced to play uh, sports behind closed doors. And that this is not a reflection of, of sort of the wider populace that want to go along and enjoy sport. I just think this is so damaging for Greek sport, for Greek football in particular, which is the one I care about most. I just think like every time you think that it might be slightly on the up, like we've seen Olympiarkos get some decent results at home. You see Ajax Athens giving it a good go in Brighton and Ajax's group with Marseille in there as well. And you think, yes, you know, it's getting good. It's it's back on the rise. Crap like this happens. And it just, it just kills it, man. And I'm, I was really disappointed to read that earlier today, but was I surprised? Of course not. Of course not. Right, uh, guys, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the debrief. We'll be back tomorrow with some more Arsenal-related content. We'll preview the PSV game in the morning and round up all the rest of the news. We'll obviously bring you some content around the game as well. And of course, we'll react to the game um, yeah, and round up the latest news on Wednesday. We might, you know what, we'll react to the PSV game straight after the game because it's an early kickoff. Um, and then so th- Wednesday show will be free for your questions and whatever other news comes up. Maybe we'll find some Interesting talking points off the back of that. Uh, Just a couple of quick updates, by the way, um, on Arsenal training today. Martinelli and Saka both missed out. Neither were were involved in training today. Martinelli's got a foot problem. Uh, Sorry, Saka's got a foot problem, um, but is still expected to travel to Eindhoven. Martinelli was ill uh, and was not involved. Positive news, though, Emile Smith-Rowe took uh, part in training, which is good. Uh, We could do with him back, couldn't we, particularly with Fabio Vieira out for a period of time now as well right i'll leave it there until next time take care of yourselves have a great day you've been listening to the debrief on the chronicles of Pod.